quick note before we get started. This episode is part of a series of shows we recorded on the floor of the Phoenix Convention Center during the Association of Corporate Council's 2019 annual meeting. I wanted to point that out in case you're curious about the background noises. I also wanted to thank the ACC for helping make these episodes possible. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. We also have two guests from other Womble Bond Dickinson offices. We have Caitlin McDowell from our Boston office and Simon Watts uh, from the UK. Welcome, Caitlin and Simon. Glad you guys could join the podcast. Thank Thank you very much. And then our special guest today is Dave Mitro. Dave is with Keolis, where he serves as general counsel and vice president of uh, client and communication affairs. Dave, thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, And we're recording live on the floor of the ACC conference here in Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, we're excited to be here. Dave, tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Keolis. Sure. So I, uh, my first year out of law school, uh, I went to law school at Northeastern University in Boston. And my first year out of law school, I was a prosecutor um, down on uh, Long Island for the Nassau County District Attorney's Office. I really enjoyed that job, but missed living in Boston. So I moved back to the Boston area and worked at a small civil litigation firm for about 15 years, where I did a wide range of trial work, anything from uh, transportation-related litigation, uh, so representing the local transportation authority, uh, different railroads, and then also a mix of uh, fire and explosion litigation. Oh, wow. Uh, and product liability <laughs> Sounds <work>. dynamic. <laughs> so it was a, a really wide mix of, uh, of things, and so it kept things really interesting on a day-to-day basis. And then about five and a half years ago, I had an opportunity to go in-house with Keolis Commuter Services, who operates the commuter rail system for the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority in Boston. Um, And I was familiar with uh, the Transportation Authority and the railroads as that's the type of um, trial work that I had been doing for the bulk of my career. And now I'm seeing it from the other side of the fence uh, in-house. Interesting. So you're one of the few, I think the more traditional path to in-house is from a corporate or transactional standpoint, but you actually came from 15 years of litigation. Yeah, it was very, it was day-to-day life as an in-house lawyer. Uh, it was very different from day-to-day life as a, as a trial lawyer. Um, and, and so it took certainly some adjusting to getting sort of the feel for sort of what the day-to-day duties and responsibilities were and the breadth of responsibilities were as the chief legal officer for the organization. Had there been other legal counsel at Keolis before, or were you essentially creating the department? I was creating the department and created it from scratch. Oh, wow. um, the way that Keolis came to be in Boston was the, um, the commuter rail contract is something that is outsourced by the local transportation authority, and um, that contract was put up for bid, and Keolis won the contract in early 2014 and then filled out its management team as we assumed operations in July of 2014. Gotcha. Do you have other people in the legal department, or are you one-man shop? I do. We have um, a legal department of two other lawyers, as well as two claims managers. Uh, We, as a railroad, as you might expect, have a significant amount of litigation issues with passenger-related injuries (laughs) and um, actually also employee injuries because we do not fall under the state workers' compensation statute. We fall under what's called the Federal Employers' Liability Act, which is effectively Mm. a, a workers' comp statute. 
uh, for the railroad industry, except you have to prove fault of the employer. So we, we actually get into litigation with our employees, which is oh. unusual. Oh, is that's unusual. that is totally yeah. unusual. Wow. Yeah. Now, is that litigation that you're handling still, given your litigation background, or do you use outside counsel or combination? So we outsource all of our uh, litigation. We right now have, for example, 40 outstanding lawsuits um, oh, wow. pending um, against Keolis, uh, a mix, again, of passenger-related in, um, incidents and employee matters. And, and so now I'm managing the types of law firms that I used to be. <laughs> that used I was to there. be, okay. Right, exactly. And is there insurance coverage that applies where the carriers are involved in picking counsel, or is this not in that? It sounds like it's an unusual, yeah. it's not your usual personal injury structure. Given, given the size and the nature of the risk, um, it's difficult to secure insurance at low enough levels of um, deductibles where it makes sense to do that. So we self-insure um, the risk um, up to pretty sizable limits, $4 million per occurrence on the employee side oh, wow. and $7.5 million, um, on the passenger side. Okay, so you're, you're coming out of pocket right. for yeah. a lot of those. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Well, I wanted to talk today about something I think a lot of people do without always thinking about it, and that's kind of this translation function where you're acting, you're trying to explain legal stuff to the business folks. And I guess let's, let me have you kind of help tee that up in terms of, you know, how does that come up? How do you approach that? I call it a translation function, but I guess one of the things as lawyers, we take these, you know, legal concepts and we have to explain them to lay people that may not understand it. How, how does that fit into your role at Kills? Sure. For, as, a, as a railroad, you might imagine we have a really wide variety of issues that we deal with, and certainly from a legal department office, you know, everything from contracts to environmental issues to um, injury lawsuits, as I mentioned, regulatory investigations, um, OSHA issues, uh, you know, a whole wide range of things, some of which we as the in-house counsel have some areas of expertise, much of which we have to outsource to, mm -hmm. uh, to folks with more specialized expertise. But most of the time, we're talking about issues that other parts of the business have a slight understanding of, but not really a detailed enough understanding, um, to, you know, which is why they come to us in the first place. Sure. And so the trick, really, in providing advice that's useful to our internal business partners is being able to translate what is often a very complex issue into clear, understandable, concise um, advice or recommendations that the business can use. And that, that is not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, I think it is a challenge. Caitlin, I know that's part of when, uh, when you're working on transactions and other stuff, there's definitely that communication role. How do you, how do you see your, your role in trying to explain stuff where you're, where you're interfacing with non-lawyer clients? Um, I think part of my role as the corporate attorney on transactions is understanding all of the moving pieces. So understanding the, the tax issues and the environmental issues enough where I can, you know, work with outside counsel or, or the business clients to explain kind of the full picture. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's helpful to have kind of the, the facts and, and, you know, the, the thoughts from the business team uh, and try and combine all of that into, you know, a, a summary of the legal problem and, and a recommendation. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, Simon, I think part of the thing that's often a challenge is you are balancing legal concerns with non-legal concerns. And, you know, the, the business folks want to get the deal done and that's their top priority. They may not care as much about the legal risk. You, you know, what, how, do, how do you deal with that balance of the competing legal and business interests when you're working with your clients? 
Well, part of it, I think, comes with experience, doesn't it? But as lawyers in, in 2019, you know, we have to see ourselves as overall business advisors, not just legal technicians. And it's absolutely essential that we are able to immediately convert the technical legal advice into not just something which is readily understandable by non-lawyers, but also gives clear advice in terms of what we think the client should be doing um, in any given situation. Gotcha. Dave, you're, you're the frontline guy in the sense of being, being there with the clients. Um, do you want stuff from your outside counsel that is already somewhat accessible, or do you find you're spending a lot of time translating and massaging you know, what you're getting from those outside counsel into things that you can, your folks can understand as people actually in the, doing the day-to-day railroad business? I think in a perfect world, it has to be a mix because, um, you know, more often than not, when I'm outsourcing something, it's because I don't have that particular area of expertise. So on the one hand, I want to get sufficient level of detail and explanation from the opinion or you know memo from outside counsel that convinces me that I should have confidence in the advice that's being given. And so me as an audience is a little bit different than what ultimately will be you know, sort of transmitted to the in-house um, business partner. Uh, so, you know, sometimes having sort of a, the first or second page is an executive summary that sort of dumbs it down, for, for lack of a better term, um, you know, that I can use to convert to uh, something for the internal business team on top of, you know, a much more detailed and technically complex um, explanation for me as a... As a um, you know, as a lawyer, I think those two right. things combined are important things to have. I think it's interesting. I know when we named this podcast the Roundhouse, you know, I had a vision of, you know, a train roundhouse of the locomotives that come in and get service. You know, our office isn't far from Spencer Shops in North Carolina, which is one of the oldest. They've got a, you know, train museum there in the Roundhouse. It occurs to me as you're talking that in some ways the in-house counsel office and department may be a bit of a roundhouse for the company because you've got, you're communicating with outside folks. You're also going to be communicating with different stakeholders within the company, right? It's not necessarily just the the, the marketing guy or just the engineering folks. You, you're going to have to interact with a lot of people and you may begin to serve that role. The lawyers that, um, that work for me I probably have grown tired of hearing me say how important it is to develop relationships across the business. And it's one of the things that we, when we are engaged in the recruiting process and hiring somebody new to, to fit the organization, it's important that we you know, find people who are not only technically proficient, but have the personality and the communication skills that you know, they can talk to everybody from you know, folks in the C-suite down to you know, people on the shop floor who are getting you know, oftentimes critical information and guidance you know, from us. So it's, it is really important that we in the legal department recognize that you know, we're not just talking to the CEO, you know, that we've got to be able to talk to folks all throughout the organization and develop relationships throughout the organization so that people feel comfortable coming to us and saying, you know, I have this issue, I'm not really sure, and sometimes it's a legal issue, sometimes it's not really a legal issue, but you know, we want to be that source of the counsel part of the sort of the council's office as well. Yeah, that's neat. I, I, I think you said you try to hire people that have those skills. Do you have practical tips that you could maybe offer some listeners about, you know, it's important to get out there, you know, how do you do it? Either, you know, physically visiting them or setting up a meeting every week. I, I, pre, I hear different things. What, what, works, what works for you? 
I think, you know, the technology is a blessing and a curse, you know, with the advent of you know, Slack and chat and email and things like that. It's really easy. It could be really easy to do much of your job, never leaving your office or home for that matter. Um, but you don't develop that sort of more robust understanding of who you're working with, who you're working for, the business in general. So I, I do encourage members of our team to, you know, if, if you're thinking of doing it by an email, make a phone call. If you're thinking of making a phone call, see if you can go do, walk down the other end of the office or take a mm. visit over to our mechanical facility and sort of do the dual opportunity of meeting somebody face-to-face -face and sort of absorbing what's going on in that environment. So I think, you know, today's in-house counsel, today's general counsel have to be much more than just legal technicians. You have to really be somebody that understands the business and has relationships sort of across departments. Yeah, I'm definitely hearing that theme. Those are good good tips. I think we learned right before the podcast, Caitlin, that you're actually in the same building as Dave, right? <laughs> we are, with so, the floor above. So you've got that physical proximity there and you didn't even realize exactly. it. Exactly. So, you know, now, now you can, it, it will not be hard if you want to have, you know, to have those, that kind of direct connection. Um, I guess there's anything also, you want to add? Yeah, Simon. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, and you know, just picking up on what Dave was saying there. Um, there's also a risk element to that, isn't there? You know, the more accessible the GC's department can be to the wider business, the less chance there is of something being held back, something that which could develop into an issue. So, I think I, I totally agree. I think that that uh, point about relationships and building relationships with all of the internal stakeholders and the people that um, you're going to come into contact with who will need legal advice internally is really important. I mean, I think I have a very concrete example of that in, in that we used to have one of our deputy general counsels who was a very sort of outgoing, gregarious person that you know, really was somebody that um, people enjoyed just being around and talking to and so forth. And so we would routinely felt like we're getting inquiries information about things that you know we didn't know we didn't know. And so those those counsel end up being the eyes and ears of the office and then we she left and we, we got somebody new who didn't have quite the same personality and then we were seeing our volume of our workload volume going way down right. and I knew that it wasn't that we no longer were having those same issues and problems <laughs> but it was just sort of that you know her style and, and sort of she wasn't nearly as accessible across the business as you know the, the prior right. person had been and you know it, it started to make me lose sleep at night wondering about yeah. that risk and what yeah. are the things that are happening that, that we just don't know. Right. That's No, I think that's a great point. The other thing that struck me when you're talking about phone call versus in person, as a fellow trial lawyer, you know, we, we know that what you say is only a portion of what people convey. You know, it's, it's how you're acting, physical appearance, gestures, tone of voice, all that's stripped out in an email. In a phone call, you're getting some of that tonal thing and the pauses, but it's really only in the face-to-face -face that you get that connection, eye contact, are they paying attention, are they distracted? And I think it's a great reminder that in this high-tech age, there's real importance and value of actually going into someone's office and saying, can we talk, or what happened here, or picking up the phone, as opposed to just a constant get one email, forward it on to three people, type up another response, because we are losing all those important layers of interpersonal communication that trial lawyers know you can't, you know, if I had to do closing argument uh, via email or just type something on the screen, you know, you're not going to be very effective. You have to connect with jurors, with the judge, and that's part of the bread and butter skill of a trial lawyer. And I think as someone that did it for 15 years, I'm sure you've got those skills inherently. I think it's neat, though, to see those 
that recognition in, hey, let's get out there and actually interact with people. And the risk is on the flip side too, is that when you don't have that personal relationship or you've had maybe one sort of rough interaction, then you know I think there's a risk of the recipient of an email reading a tone into the email that wasn't intended in the first place or, or so forth. And then it just sort of, you create this, this divide that doesn't need to be there if you've just sort of revisited the, the personal interaction that you know really should and used to exist. Right. So back to our translation point, I do think that you know, the one thing I sometimes struggle with in explaining, and I, I work directly with a, a lot of non-lawyer clients. So, you know, small companies, they don't have a lawyer. They've been sued, and they're like, you know, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? So part of it is an education process. This is the legal process. This is the timing. But I do think explaining some complex structures around indemnification, joint liability, statute of limitations, you know, people have a general sense of some of this, but it's hard to translate. And I imagine that's often true, you know, for these complex transactions, too. You're explaining a lot of intricate legal stuff that takes 30 pages, and someone wants a one-paragraph summary of, what does this, you know, this deal mean? Or, you know, tell me what it means. We heard in another podcast, they just wanted a simple picture you know, to explain the deal. And diagrams are great, but you probably can't explain a 30-page deal in a one-page pencil diagram. But how, how do you bridge that? I guess I'd ask all three of you, because that seems like a, a constant challenge. I think one of the things that we heard about in the plenary session this morning was sort of understanding the communication style of your audience and, and how different people sort of learn and understand and absorb information in different ways. And I do think that that holds true when you are looking to communicate information to you know your business partners throughout the organization, understanding sometimes on a person-by-person basis, you know, what is their you know, what's their level of interest? What's their background? Are they somebody that wants to know everything or do they want to just, look, I just need to know, you know, these five things to get me through, you know, this project and they don't want to hear the rest of it. So I think there is a balancing act between, you know, making sure that they have enough information and you've done your job as counsel in conveying it, but also making sure that you're flexible enough and creative enough to be able to um, transmit that information in, to different people with different backgrounds. Makes sense. I think that's really, really good point. I mean, there, there are different. I've never worked in an in-house environment, but I think the principle is the same whether you're in-house or serving clients in a in a private practice firm. But there are very different levels of sophistication in relation to the clients that you're dealing with, and you have to be able to gauge quickly the level of experience, if you like, that, that the client um, in question has. And I, I think that's true in an in-house environment as well. So, for example, in, in my line of work, corporate M&A, you may be dealing with the guy who's built a business and um, built it from scratch and it's his life's work and he, he's going to do a one-time transaction to realize his, um, his cash and, and go off into the sunset and retire. Um, he's going to take a lot more educating than, for example, an M&A director or um, a serial entrepreneur. So that, I think that point that Dave makes about knowing your audience and, and the level of sophistication that, that they have is, is critical. What do you, you mentioned you outsource all the litigation work. Are there other things you rely on outside counsel for, given the size of your department? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a mix. Environmental is one area that jumps up specifically. That's the type of thing where 
you know, we, we, we don't have the bandwidth or the, the need to have somebody in-house to do that, but it is such a specialized area that, um, mm. that we do want to make sure that we've got the right people, you know, who know the players and know the sort of the intricacies of the regulatory environment um, to, to be doing that. We do outsource some employment-related um, work, mostly just because of the volume that we have. That's an area where I think we could easily staff up and, and sort of reduce our outside council spend because that's you know that's an area that sort of fits nicely with with sort of an in-house team. Um, and then you know every now and again, you know we might have an unusual um, tax issue, or if we're looking for um, some an independent assessment of our. 800-page contract with the MBTA. You know, some, sometimes <laughs> right. you know, th- there's some benefit to you having sort of a fresh set of eyes looking at it and giving us a, a reality check on, you know, are we are we reading it the way, you know, through a certain mm-hmm. prism because we want it, we want to see it that way, and, and so sometimes we right. rely upon. That. Is Kyolis a privately held company or part government? Is it related with the government stuff you mentioned? The, yeah, the so, contracts. I don't know the structure. Yep. So Kyolis. Our parent company is based in Paris, um, oh. and we operate in 16 different countries around the world. Okay, I didn't realize um, that. Keolis itself is owned, uh, I think, 70% by the French National Railway, which is called SNCF, and the remaining 30% is owned by a pension fund out of Quebec called uh, CDPQ. Huh. So we've got sort okay. of a mix of uh, different uh, wow. uh, different stakeholders, and then you know we're so we're a uh, few level down yeah. subsidiary so are there, are there in-house counsel like in the, in those other countries in France and stuff that you're working with as well yeah so we have about 50 lawyers that make up the, the oh, sort wow. of Keolis team around the world um, I am the general counsel of our subsidiary that's dedicated in, exclusively to Boston and the lawyers that work for me we've got another lawyer who basically handles the rest of North America and then we've got you know different subsidiaries have their different lawyers and then the team in in Paris either focuses on you know corporate stuff like um, like Simon and Caitlin work on or work on um, supporting our bid work um, around the world so most of most of what we do is basically bid on okay. um, public transportation contracts that are being outsourced um, around the world whether it be bus train tram uh, autonomous vehicles ride sharing you know every mode of transportation mobility I guess we say now um, that you can think of uh, <laughs> Uh, we're, we're involved in it. Gotcha. Great. No, thank you. That's that's interesting. It's got to be an interesting dynamic where you've got a really small, you know, team in Boston, but you're also part of this much larger structure and other lawyers and that kind of thing. I think one of the things that um, was why we were successful as Keolis sort of securing our contract in, in Boston is uh, because we bring that international expertise, uh, particularly when you think of rail, um, I think folks in the U.S. have this romanticized view of, of you know, rail in Europe, and, you know, that, and, and there's a lot of truth to, to not only the It's roman- a pretty good system. Say, no, as a rom- rider, right. I think that's, yes. I don't know the business model behind it, but I do know there are a lot of trains, and they are on time. And they're so on time, and they run, they, you know, they run at high speed, and it's, it's really neat that the executive team that I work with is you know, made up of folks from all over the world um, who have rail experience everywhere from Australia to France to the UK oh, wow. and, and you know, everywhere in between. And as well as um, technicians lower down the line, you know, folks who have you know, seen the way that 
our you know mechanical uh, services and uh, depots work in, in you know places in Europe where they you know have things working like clockwork um, and helping you know to, to shift the culture in our um, operating environment and sort of move it towards you know that level of European precision. That's great. So is there training? I mean, do like the Boston employees train or visit European facilities? There's that cross yeah, connection. We, um, it is one of the, the, the really interesting things about being part of that international organization is having the opportunity to um, visit sister companies and, and sort of see how they do things. And that, that's been true, you know, not only at my level, but all the way, you know, for folks down who are working in our transportation teams, um, mechanical departments, track maintenance, you know, they've all you know, many of the sort of higher level managers have had the opportunity to go overseas and, um, you know, spend a day, a couple days a week, you know, sort of doing that information sharing and then bringing back, you know, best practices and new ideas into Boston. And it does, I think it really does, you know, help, you know, bring that diversity of thought into um, the workforce, uh, which is something I think whenever, you, know, you want to do that process of continuous improvement. I think bringing in, um, you know, folks that have done it differently from someplace else, you know, adds an, a, a good dimension to it. And you know, that holds true whether you know you're talking about legal matters, you know, at regular business matters, or, or you know, maintenance of the train. Right. Talk about um, with our, in our, as far as our diversity, uh, uh, human resources diversity. We talk a lot about the fact that we want that diversity because our business is thought, right? At the end of the day, that's what our business is, is selling thought, providing thought. And if you have a diverse group of people with diverse experience, diverse backgrounds, not only in their in their training and their education, but just in their life experience, right? You're going to come at solving a problem different. And so that diversity of thought, you're, it's so great to hear you say that because that is, it is, it's, that's, I think, something that's maybe missed when we talk about, I know we're not talking really about diversity today, but, but I, I think that is something that's really uh, kind of missed in the conversations when we talk about diversity as far as human resource goes, is that, yeah, you want diversity of thought. You, know, you don't, if everybody, if, if you hire uh, hammers and that's all you have, then every problem is going to be a nail. Yeah. You know? I think what's interesting, particularly and unique about where we are, is the bulk of the staff that work on our commuter rail system in Boston, they transfer from one operator to the next. So the commuter rail service used to be run by Amtrak in the 80s and 90s, and then it switched to another service provider in the early 2000s, and 99% of that workforce just switched over, except for the senior management team. So, the, And then the same thing happened when Keolis took over. There were 1,985 employees that we inherited, and then there were 15 of us that really were sort oh, wow. of Keolis folks that then had the, the responsibility to sort of bring the Keolis way and teach the Keolis way and to work on changing that culture. 
But when you're th- t- talking about diversity of thought, and in a lot of cases, you've got you know commuter rail staff that have been working on the property for 30 years and don't know another just don't know another way. So you know, bringing folks in from you know not only other places in the country but other places in the world who just you know will look at our practices and think it's crazy in the same way that we would look at their practices and say, I can't believe you would do it that way. Right. But the synthesis of that at the end of the day, sort of once you work through those nuances, you know, you hope that, that you know that comes out with a better product, whatever that product is, whether it's thought, a service, a process, or whatever. I think it's a great point. I mean, it's something I've seen with our combination with the Bond Dickinson folks across the pond. Um, you know, it just there are differences in the UK approach to law, whether it's litigation or transactional stuff, and the traditional large U.S. law firm. And I think getting that, you know, talking about those differences, embracing some of that difference of thought and sharing it has been one of the great things to me about combining to be a real transatlantic firm. And and I think you've captured some of that from your business perspective too. You get that. I, I guess on, benefit. On, the, on the flip side, I'd ask somebody like, Caitlin, like when you're working with in-house counsel or general counsel at a, at a client, what is, you know, what's the type of information that you need from us to help, you know, you do your job better when you're, when you receive an, an assignment from, from a client? Um, I think it's helpful to understand the, the facts at hand and, and kind of the goals of the client so that you can really give, you know, targeted legal advice. Because uh, you want it to be on point to what the the issue is, and you know, hopefully, the solution the client wants. So. Simon, anything you want to add on that in terms of what um, gets helpful? That's a good. I appreciate you asking, Dave, because we don't get asked that often. From you know, what what do we what do we want? I have some thoughts I, on it, but let me go, Simon. I, go I, first. I think, in a sense, it's you know, without going too far, um, as much the, the more information we can get of any description uh, that will help the cause is is better. Um, even things like you know understanding the dynamics of um, people working in the business, if there are any political issues um, that we need to work around, that kind of thing always helps. In addition to the obvious core material that we need to be able to advise on the on the legal side. I think for me, and I, I do business litigation, so the thing that I think is often most helpful, and I try to always ask, is. What are the objectives that we want to do? And I think it's particularly true when we're initiating litigation. It's often easier. If you've been sued, you know, we want a defense verdict or we want to settle for as little as possible. Those are typical. Once in a while, there's nuances where they're like, well, we actually want to preserve a relationship with this company that just sued us. So we want a settlement that that we don't lose the entire business line, those kind of things. As when we're plaintiffs, you know, my assumption is often you're suing because you want money, but I've had a number of cases where there are a number of other dynamics, and it could be this guy needs to save face because he said that they made this promise and he didn't, and if we let these guys walk away from this commitment, we're not going to have any credibility in the business world. I need to hear that up front right. because it's going to influence my default litigation settings to say what I want is money. If we're really teaching someone a lesson or really establishing a precedent or something, what I view as a great settlement may not be what my client thinks is a really good settlement. Or they may be worried about PR and say, I don't care if we have to pay a million dollars, but I don't want this to be the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I I like to hear those kind of, I may say, well, let's go to arbitration, right? I mean, there are there are options. I can say, let's propose arbitration or with a high-low. Or You can be creative, and I like being creative as a lawyer, but I can't be sure that I'm aligned with what my client really wants to do unless they've told me that. So that, for me, that clear direction, this is the real goal. I hate 
you know, I hate the hidden agenda. Sometimes I'll sense at the end of a case, well, wait a minute, this, this makes a lot of sense. And be like, well, we didn't get that other deal or the VP doesn't like this solution. And then I find out, you know, at the end that this is all about, he wants an apology or some non-monetary thing. I'm like, well, it would have been good to know. So that's yeah. my... And I, I, clear sense of client objectives, I think, is, is fundamental. You know, what, what are your main objectives in relation to this transaction or piece of litigation, whatever it may be? Absolutely vital. It is. It's, I think it's one of those things, particularly more junior lawyers don't necessarily think about either in-house or on the, on, you know, on the outhouse side. That's probably not what it meant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you know, just that the, you know, the legal function is much more than just specifically focusing on answering a discrete legal question. You know, that there are those factors that are critical into the decision-making process and that other people have something to offer on that point of view and you know you don't just have to be you know locked inside the c-suite to appreciate you know what the politics of the, of the issue are or what the pr concerns are and and i think you know we we miss out on a valuable piece of input when we are working with outside counsel if we don't sort of clue them into those important those other important elements yeah. and get get that feedback. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got sort of a confidential sounding board in, you know, outside counsel who are, you know, becoming intimately familiar with the same set of facts that you are and it's, you know, it's worthwhile to make sure that you know, I think giving outside counsel that freedom and sort of green light to feel like they can and say, you know, here's the technical legal answer that you're looking for, but is that really what you want to do? <laughs> you know, or have you thought about the, the downstream ramifications of doing something like that? And I, I welcome that kind of feedback because there's a limited source of people that I can take that from that, you know, that has the credibility that I'll, you know, I'll find it meaningful. So I do think it's something that's, that's worth, worthwhile. It's great. No, yeah, I think that's good. Before we go, I did have one question. Um, so, obviously, from part of what I do is internal communications, and I think we kind of touched on this, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more from you about when you do have these um, essentially legal matters that need to be conveyed to um, particularly compliance types things, and that is a good one, but. Um, when you have those kind of complex issues that need to be conveyed to the rank and file within an organization, have you found you know particular ways to do that? It had to work a lot with uh, your internal marketing folks to help do that. You know, um, what have you found to be most useful, practical for that? So the internal communications is one of our most challenging issues that, that we still wrestle with on, you know, to this day. Part of it for us is the challenge because a lot of our workforce doesn't have access to email. So oh, we, wow. have tra- we have trained crews who, because of safety factors, you know, they don't have, you know, handheld devices and otherwise don't sit at a desk when they're not on board the trains. Um, you know, we've got mechanical staff who, you know, are busy, you know, working on fixing trains all day long or the engineering teams out on the tracks, you know, fix- fixing the tracks. So out of our 2,400 employees at this point, we only have like seven or 800 that have email addresses. So we've got a 
wide range of communication issues to communicate on some you know the compliance type that you're asking about but other things just more routinely like general newsletters you know about the organization how do you get those out to the people and do it effectively and so when we do have compliance related communications it ends up being a very cumbersome process for us because you know we end up doing a mix of you know email type communications for people that have access to it then we've got to do things as you know like hard copy like literal bulletin board yeah, type like things board stuff and sign off so that you know if we need to make sure that everybody in the organization ha- you know understands that we're going to do a, a review of their driving you know history for the last three years but because the the fair credit reporting act requires you know consent for that on an ongoing basis then we've got to physically have you know man- transportation managers corralling people when they come off the trains to do that so it is it, it, for all the advancements in technology you know we still are in the dark ages in some respects with trying to um, to handle what should be a sort of a simple communication and compliance issue. Interesting. Great. We're about out of time. I guess I'd invite any of you to make any uh, closing remarks or final comments on on ways to communicate better. Any any parting thoughts that you want to share, Dave? Well, I do. I just want to, in the first instance, say thank you for having me um, here. It's been a really interesting discussion. Um, and I think, you know, my final sort of words of wisdom or point of thought are, you know, when communicating with in-house counsel, make sure you're providing clear advice um, after you understand what deliverable your, your client's looking for. But but take a position, you know, make a recommendation. You know, at the end of the day, it's not terribly helpful to get, you know, a 15-page, you know, memo, and at the end of it, still not know what to do. You know, and, and I find frustration with my internal business partners when they, if they get memos from, you know, me or my team, where, you know, where we didn't do that. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's really important to, to, you know, yes, analyze both sides of an issue, but you know, at the end of the day, make a recommendation. Hmm. Good. Any final final thoughts, Caitlin, Simon? Sure. Um, I think that, you know, you should view your client relationship as uh, kind of being part of a team and you're on the same team as your client um, and you really want to be a, a trusted advisor to them. So part of that is making sure you understand their business and their objectives um, and ask questions so you can really give them practical and useful advice. Yeah, and I think the only thing I would add is to say that um, in order for us to be able to deliver that quality commercial advice and take a position, to use Dave's language, the more information that we can have, and and this was the point we were covering earlier, um, the better. So it's up to us to ask the right questions, but um, help us by giving us the information that we need that's broader to the the legal issue itself. Um, And that way we should get to the take a position stage much quicker and much more effectively great that's great well thank you dave caitlin simon i very much appreciate you joining us on this podcast this brings us to the end of our show um if anyone listening wants to connect with you uh, are you on linkedin are there other ways they should reach out all right so check linkedin and i know you can find caitlin and simon at our website wumblebondickinson.com i want to Thank everyone, and I run remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse, as well as subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments on this or future episodes, please share them with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. I will see you at the next station.
In-House Roundhouse is a production of Wombobon Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.